So with that, I'm going to thank Dr. Bender Ignacio, and we're going to go ahead and transition to our first panel discussion. I'm going to introduce the uh, moderator and then have him introduce the panelists. Um, so the first panel discussion is focused on um, typical cases in prevention and outpatient care for COVID-19, uh, still the, the bulk of what we do uh, in terms of treating COVID-19. And this has been going to be led by Dr. Arthur Kim. I can really think of no one better than Dr. Kim to lead this discussion. Dr. Kim is the director of the Viral Hepatitis Clinic and the Division of Infectious Diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital. He has really been at the forefront of care of people with viral hepatitis for many, many years, has uh, had a prominent role on the guidelines for hepatitis C treatment. In addition to his role in uh, viral hepatitis, uh, he's on the Department of Health and Human Services uh, HIV guidelines panel and um, the NIH guidelines for COVID-19. And in that role, he's been one of the leaders um, he's also the medical director for COVID-19 here at Massachusetts General. So I'm going to turn the microphone over to, to Dr. Kim and uh, have him introduce uh, the panel and lead us through a number of cases. Please keep the questions coming in the Q&A, and again, we'll get to as many as we can, and certainly in the roundtable. Over to you, um, Dr. Kim. Thank you, Raj, for the kind introduction and um, a special welcome to uh, everyone who's joined and especially uh, to my fellow panelists. Um, so I will um, quickly introduce um, Dr. Gandhi and Dr. Benson will each be um, joining as well. Um, Dr. Bender Ignacio, you just heard from. Uh, we will be joined uh, further by, uh, as you can see, by uh, a luminary um, uh, panel here of uh, first Peter Chin Hong from UCSF, who will also be leading the inpatient panel. Um, we are joined by Kara Chu from UCLA, a member of the Division of Infectious Diseases, um, by Gadi Haidar from UPMC, um, uh, who's uh, also in infectious diseases. Uh, we have a, a special person who, who is an honorary infectious disease person who, in fact, did an ID year, but is um, an OB gyne, um, Laura Riley, who's uh, head of the department at uh, Wild Cornell. And um, uh, I, I'm not sure if I see uh, Teresa here yet, but uh, uh, Teresa may be joining later one of the panels. But for now, um, we, we, we're really, um, I think I got everyone there. So, so we'll just And this is, these are my disclosures. I believe everyone else's disclosures may be found in other materials. Uh, these are the objectives that we will at least be able to list the recommended outpatient options for recent COVID-19 infection uh, in the outpatient setting and translate some recent data regarding the outpatient world into real life scenarios. Uh, to that end, I'll begin uh, with a, um, uh, a discussion about who qualifies as high risk and um, this is a 22-year-old um, woman who um, uh, is uh, pregnant at 18 weeks, who's presenting in the prenatal setting. She is unvaccinated uh, against uh, COVID-19 and is also um, skeptical even about the influenza vaccine, which is typically recommended. Uh, she has a pre-gravid um, body mass index of 35 and um, past medical history of migraines, and she does have um, asthma, which can bother her at times and has some inhalers. Um, she is a previous smoker, has quit uh, for her pregnancy. And so um, just a, a question about who qualifies as high risk. There, there's a number of conditions that, that do qualify 
people at potentially high risk for poor outcomes due to COVID-19. I'll begin with a question to Dr. Chu. Um, what are the features here that worry you about outcomes and what are potentially protective factors? And um, would you consider this patient um, high risk enough to consider treatment? Yes, thanks for the question. So I think she has multiple risk factors for uh, progression to severe COVID. She's pregnant, um, which is a major risk factor for, um, for severe disease. Also unvaccinated, of course, um, uh, and then has a high BMI. Um, and her asthma history as, as well um, is, uh, is a risk factor. Her, her age um, is, uh, is probably protective, but I think her multiple risk factors otherwise really um, you know, outweigh that and, uh, and she should be considered for treatment. Or, so, <laughs> yes, and um, so right now it's hypothetical. She's uh, currently unvaccinated. And so I imagine that many uh, OBs uh, may encounter this. And this is just a CDC graphic with some highlights of um, what um, uh, risks there are in pregnancy. Um, Dr. Riley, I wondered if you could take us through um, how you translate some of these statistics and risks to patients um, when you're counseling them. Yeah, happy to. So I think, you know, the conversation for most um, patients, most pregnant patients or those considering pregnancy is really thinking about the risk of the vaccine versus the risk of the disease. And I think that we have great data now showing that the risk of the disease could be quite severe with ICU admission, increased risk of death. I think we've also realized that there are fetal complications, which sometimes patients forget about. Um, but things like stillbirth and prematurity are also, you know, significant risks for women who get um, COVID in the course of pregnancy. Um, and then um, obviously the other one, not so obvious, but we, we have seen over the course of the pandemic is increased risk of preeclampsia, which is another, you know, sort of pregnancy specific complication. So I think it's clear that COVID bad in pregnancy how you um, slice it. And then what we have also learned over the course of time is that the vaccine itself, though, um, appears to be quite safe. Um, and now we can say to women very clearly, we've got a lot of data to show you that the vaccine doesn't increase the risk for miscarriage, which is always a concern. It doesn't increase the risk for um, birth defects, which is another huge concern. Um, and uh, we can actually prove it now because we actually have the data. I think we were a little bit behind the eight ball when the vaccine first came out because pregnant women part of the clinical trials. Um, but now we have real world data to um, back all of that up. So in on balance, we say that it's much better to be vaccinated um, and boosted if that's what's, you know, if, if you know, the timing um, occurs during pregnancy. So we encourage people to either get the primary series during pregnancy or the booster if that's what they're, um, if, if that's the appropriate timing. Thanks, Laura. Um, and so, um, uh, so I am seeing a question in the chat as well that um, how do we discuss the risks benefits of vaccine when, when at this point in the pandemic, uh, patients um, are experiencing uh, vaccine hesitancy or, or, or um, and I, I encounter patients who receive their primary series but are, are also reluctant against boosters. And I, I just wanted to show this graph of um, booster dosing um, by country. Um, 
recently accessed on this Our World in Data site. And you can see how the United States, uh, while we have them available um, since the beginning, uh, we had vaccine early on, as well as um, you know, recommendations for boosting, how we're beginning to lag behind um, other countries. Um, and then the, uh, not only within our country, but that there are regional differences uh, regarding vaccine hesitancy. So, you know, I noticed our panel is mostly from the um, uh, uh, either California or Washington or the East Coast. But Dr. Haydar, you, you practice more in the middle of the country in, uh, in Pittsburgh. And so um, I was curious, um, uh, can you describe some of your experiences uh, with vaccine hesitant patients? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, I will say the experience has definitely changed over the past two, two, two and a half years. And my experience is a little skewed because the patients that I see in this council for vaccines are all immunodeficient. So I only see, you know, pre, post, SOT, BMT, CAR T, and things like that. So the bulk of these individuals sort of know that they're immunocompromised and actually may come to me. They have come to me with questions about updated CDC recommendations for vaccines before I even know about them, uh, which, is, which, is, which is a bit funny. But yes, there are those who uh, in the early stages of the pandemic were vaccine hesitant. Um, and one piece of advice that a palliative care physician told me while approaching these people is to just approach it with curiosity and not the sense that I'm there to convince you or to argue with you, but more why are you feeling this way? For some of them, I feel like I was able to convince them and for others, and especially now, uh, some individuals have just decided that, that they're not gonna get vaccinated. And I, and I just don't think it's possible to convince them. One thing I, I found helpful was very early on, we had conducted a study looking at immune responses and immunodeficient people and actually participants in that, a participant in that study reached out to me asking me to speak in her patient advocacy group for patients with heme cancers, because she knew a lot of heme cancer patients who were hesitant. And so I gave them this whole talk and this, and the, and this whole thing. And I think a lot of them changed their minds after it. Uh, but I unfortunately don't have sort of this magic bullet to, to, to solve these issues. Still, um, we appreciate you fighting the good fight here, um, but in, in some ways that language is, is very important. You said um, to be curious, and I'm just reminded of this show that many, many of you may have watched Ted Lasso where he says, be curious, not judgmental, and it's a philosophy that serves us well in many arenas. Um, so uh, before we move on to this uh, next question, um, this next slide, I, I wanted to ask, um, uh, is Teresa on yet or are we still waiting her? I uh, am here. Oh, Hi. wonderful. Um, Teresa Evering is from Cornell and you'll hear from her later regarding um, post COVID. Um, what can we uh, say right now about um, if people ask about vaccines and whether they would prevent um, post acute sequela of COVID? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good question and questions that we expect our, our patients to ask. I think there are two ways to think about this. Um, the first um, sounds relatively simple. Um, the best way to prevent long COVID is to prevent COVID-19 illness. 
um, in general. So that's the first way to think about vaccines. Um, in addition to social distancing when appropriate, the appropriate use of PPE, it's all part of a pattern of behaviors that can help us to prevent COVID-19 illness. I will discuss in my talk um, some emerging data that does show decreased risk of um, long COVID complications, depending on what the complication is looking at, particularly using large electronic health records data that does show that there may be some protection um, against long COVID in individuals who are previously vaccinated and that those who have breakthrough infection um, with long COVID um, resulting have decreased um, risk of, of uh, events when compared to individuals who are not vaccinated. So there is some emerging data looking at that that is positive. Um, what's less clear is whether or not in individuals who do go on to get PASC or long COVID, um, despite being vaccinated, if there is significant um, difference in symptoms, for example, from long COVID, there is less data in that realm, but there is a growing um, amount of data that supports the use of vaccines for um, at least the mitigation of long COVID. Well, thank you, that's a wonderful answer. And, and uh, we look very much forward to, to, to the talk later, um, such an important topic. So the, what I'm showing on the screen now is um, a common question coming up really as of um, summer uh, 2022. Um, so we're hearing so much about novel variants, escaping immunity, uh, BA45, et cetera. And so they're like, well, you know, should I really get boosted at this stage? Um, so what I'm showing is, is the protective effect of the fourth dose for hospitalizations and severe COVID-19 for the four dose group compared to a control group that had uh, fewer doses in Israel in very high risk patients. So this helped us uh, understand things early on in the Omicron uh, epidemic. But uh, now we're facing vaccines and, and, and now we have this interesting dilemma as to wait, whether to wait for, um, for Omicron specific vaccines. So, um, so let's say, uh, I'll just present myself. I'm a 49 year old who's following the rules and has three um, uh, mRNA doses so far and, and um, uh, I'll turn 50 shortly. Uh, should I um, receive um, a vaccine on my 50th birthday, or should I uh, await an Omicron-specific vaccine? I'll ask that of Rachel. That's a great question, Arthur. I think um, I've been getting that question a lot. Um, I think, again, it's, it's, to me, it's always about shared decision-making. And, um, you know, if your 50th birthday, I mean, obviously there's nothing magical about uh, that exact date other than that's the eligibility criteria, but if it's getting close to October when we're projected to have a variant specific um, that uh, bivalent um, booster, then potentially it's worth waiting. But if uh, one maybe had a little different scenario in which one had a number of comorbidities, um, uh, metabolic concerns, or, or immunologic risk, um, then it might be more prudent to get that fourth dose right now. Um, so I, I, again, I think it's always about shared decision-making. Um, a lot of people have asked, um, you know, is it worth getting a booster, you know, as you said, even with sort of the immune evasion of BA4-5? And one of the important things, again, I'll use the sort of um, exercise uh, uh, analogies for the, the immune system is that um, 
a booster isn't really like getting the same vaccine over and over again, because uh, even if the vaccine is the same vaccine, your immune system is different. Your immune responses have evolved since the first series. And especially in someone who's already had, let's say, an Omicron infection or even a you know prior variant of infection, uh, your immune system has been exercised in different ways since then. So you can go to the gym and work on your biceps, but your your bicep workout will be different than had you done it six months ago um, because you've been continually doing biceps since then. So I think the more sort of ways that you have to challenge your immune system. Um, like going to the gym and doing a variety of different workouts, even if it's not exactly the same variant as what's circul circulating right now, it's still cross-training. And um, I'll just follow uh, that up. Like, uh, how should we consider when people state they, they had Omicron recently and, um, and that should kind of count as their booster? So uh, Rachel, just briefly, um, do, do you, that, that, that concept of hybrid immunity. Um, what are your thoughts on on uh, on discussing that with patients? I mean, we we don't know entirely the duration of protection from a, a single um, variant, uh, but it seems like it's at least a month likely three months and we don't know what will emerge. I think it's probably safe to wait again, at least one to three months after having a most recent infection um, to get boosted. Um, if one is already vaccinated, I think, you know, I would be much more strong about getting the primary series if one had only had, for example, a single infection and not yet vaccinated. Um, but I, again, it's, I think about the number of challenges and the variety of challenges um, one doesn't go to the gym only once, one goes back to the gym over and over to get in the shape that they want to be in. Great. Um, I think if I were a patient, I would very much enjoy having shared decision-making with you. You're very um, thoughtful and clear about these things, so we'll uh, return to that topic later. Um, so let's return uh, to the case. So uh, this, um, uh, perhaps you could uh, guess that the, the unvaccinated woman um, who's also pregnant a few weeks later presents with four days of congestion, body aches, loss of taste and smell, multiple other family members are ill. Um, there's um, uh, no change in uh, fetal movement uh, reported and she is positive via a home antigen test. So um, I think um, testing, um, we, we just have a pretty brief um, discussion about this in this series, but could be an entire panel about uh, how to test. So first I wanted to ask Dr. Chinhong or Peter um, uh, about should we confirm these diagnoses um, with PCR before considering for treatment? Um, how do we think about antigen testing and prior probability? And um, I'll also ask you about whether uh, to test for other viral uh, infections. Yes, thanks, Arthur. So it all depends on what's circling in, in the community as to the performance of the test. So right now, with more than 100,000 cases in the U.S., pretty much in, in most states, uh, increasing up to a million in reality, because, again, most people are doing home testing, uh, the chances are pretty high that if you have a positive antigen test at home, that it's a true positive uh, so the, um, the, the idea is that most people are actually having false negatives rather than false positives at this point. And it's very common for people to have maybe three days, uh, sometimes even more of, of false negative tests in the absence of symptoms, uh, in the presence of symptoms. Uh, and that's really because of the way the antigen versus the PCR works. It's said that you need more than 100,000 uh, 
viral particles to make an antigen test positive, whereas you need just a few to turn a PCR positive. So basically the, the, the approach is right now, uh, when you have a positive, it's real. If you're lucky to even have that positive early on, um, when you are exiting isolation and you, you get to that, um, you don't use a PCR, it's too sensitive and an antigen is better for transmissibility. In terms of co-infections, uh, it all depends on the season. Um, right now we've had a protracted influenza season. So in some places they're still seeing stragglers. Um, and you know I think the limitation is we don't have a lot of at-home influenza testing, which would be great. And I think that's the most, second most important uh, test because it's actionable. You can give therapies around it in the hospitalized setting. I think we test for a wider variety of, of agents. Of course, the third most important virus in the season, generally winter, although it's been modified because of COVID, is RSV. And again, it depends on the host you're thinking of. So COVID number one, two, and three, uh, maybe influenza, depending on the season, and RSV, again, depending on the season, and the person, immunocompromised children definitely want to know if you're RSV positive. Thanks. Um, and um, uh, uh, I wanted to move on uh, quickly, but I just wanted to note that this patient is presenting uh, or calling you at four days into the illness. And so there can be wide variability as well as to when they call you. But fortunately, this happens to be within a five-day window um, because um, you can um, potentially, in this case, confirm by PCR. I'll mention a couple medications that she's on, including inhaled fluticasone and uh, salmeterol. Uh, as a reminder, she also is has a um, uh, a high BMI. And so as mentioned earlier, she, she does qualify as a high-risk patient for potentially treatment. And what would be your preferred treatment option? And, and think about it now in the Omicron era and um, that she's day four. So would it be supportive care? Um, would it be molnupiravir? Would it be a monoclonal antibody that's active against the, the current circulating variant? Nermatrovil ritonavir? remdesivir or azithromycin. And if I can ask my fellow panelists what they would choose in, in our sort of um, panelist chat, I am, that, may, uh, that would be helpful. We'll give it a, a, a minute and I can hopefully be prompted when we have enough responses. Um, I think, uh, you know, I'll, I'll uh, want to ask while we're waiting, uh, Laura, um, Dr. Riley, um, this, this patient called us a little bit late. Um, uh, you know, I think we've been reminding patients to try to contact us in a timely manner so we can apply therapies. Um, is that pretty routine in, in, in uh, communication to pregnant patients these days? Um, I'm, I'm afraid it's probably not routine enough. Um, I certainly try and, you know, remind all of my patients. Um, it's interesting. I was mentioning to someone the other day, um, another uh, one of my partners, I said, you know, why aren't patients calling us and telling us they have COVID so that we can do something about it? And she astutely said, because they don't want to be told that they can't come in for their ultrasound or they can't come in for their appointment. So there's, there's a little of the, I don't want you to know that I have COVID because I know I'm going to be, you know, kept out of the hospital. So I hadn't really actually even thought of that, but, you know, in retrospect, it's probably the 
name of those people. Um, but for those women who do call, um, we then have, um, as others have said, a, a full conversation um, uh, about uh, the risks and benefits of using medication. And I would have chosen Paxlovid for someone like this um, because um, it is readily available and because there is really good data on the safety of ritonavir in pregnancy. And I talked to them about, you know, 20 year use um, with HIV. Um, and um, now we do have some experience with it as well. Um, and there's a little bit of pregnancy data, um, uh, which is not showing anything of concern. So that would, that would have been my first uh, choice. I think monoclonal antibodies is another option, but for most obstetrical services, it's really hard to sort of just get access to it. Um, and just the machinations around, you know, can, can it be given on the labor floor? How many weeks is she? Do you have to monitor? Because now, you know, it, it becomes this big thing. So um, I think for that reason as well, I would Paxlovid, which is readily available. Great. Um, I, I wonder if a panelist has a taker for um, uh, potentially defending supportive care, um, but uh, I guess that argument would be that this patient is young and that in the Omicron era, we, you know, it does um, seem to result in fewer hospitalizations, but nonetheless, I personally would, would be worried um, uh, about the, um, uh, the, her unvaccinated status and that, um, you know, could we have a reprise of, of the, the sicker pregnant patients that we saw um, early on in the pandemic? Um, so, so, uh, azithromycin, uh, we had zero takers, um, in the, in the police and, and that's, that's nice to hear. Uh, it's tempting to give azithromycin for, um, um, for, uh, you know, a, a viral illness. I know that tempts a lot of PCPs, but we actually have data regarding azithromycin and, and acute COVID-19 that it was, uh, uh, very much neutral in, in, uh, randomized trials. Uh, there's one answer here that I think um, none of the panelists would give, which is um, molnupiravir due to its concerns. And we'll return to that a little bit later in the talk. But then it's, um, I wanted to ask Dr. Haydar who answered, and whatever you can get uh, fastest. And so um, uh, I think that's, uh, that's, that's kind of one of the things that nermatrovir ritonavir is something that is, uh, at least in the United States now, uh, fairly readily available compared to the logistical issues that you just heard about regarding the others. And it seems like the other panelists are also there, but we'll have an opportunity to delve a little deeper into this case. Um, and so this is just a reminder about uh, some materials regarding um, the um, uh, Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, which uh, there are also materials on the IDSA Learning Network regarding pregnant patients, as well as uh, on at the NIH website. And so uh, just to remind uh, those of us who don't routinely advise about um, pregnant patients that there are um, materials to look at. And so um, both in the chat, as well as amongst the panelists, there um, were some things brought up regarding the uh, inhaled um, uh, medications that the patient's on. And so um, I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Gandhi about this. Um, and I think this was a bit addressed in, in the Q and A earlier. Um, what, are, what are ways we can think about um, making sure that we um, uh, avoid drug interactions. And how would you think about the inhalers that this patient's on, both fluticasone or uh, inhaled um, uh, corticosteroid, as well as um, uh, salmuterol, I think. So. 
Yeah, these are great questions. And, you know, most of us are HIV clinicians and we've been taught appropriately that fluticasone is problematic with ritonavir because ritonavir raises the levels of fluticasone and that can result either in iatrogenic um, Cushing's um, as the effect wears off or glucocorticoid uh, excess. The important point to remember is obviously our patients getting ritonavir or also cobacistat are getting it for, for months or a lifetime essentially. And that effect on fluticasone is most prominent in people who are on long durations of ritonavir, long durations of cobacistat. So for very short durations, five days of nematavir ritonavir that this uh, pregnant individual would get, I think it is fine to uh, co-administer with fluticasone. Sometimes we will change the um, steroid inhaler in people with HIV who are getting pharmacologic boosters, but I don't think that's necessary for the fluticasone. And if you look at the NA, at the uh, Liverpool site, which uh, Dr. Kim has up right now, um, there's a there's a comment about this uh, for fluticasone with a kind of a green color, meaning okay to give fluticasone. Um, Salmeterol, though that same interaction gets a red from Liverpool. So there is enough of an interaction between nermatavir and ritonavir with selmeterol that if you are able to switch her to uh, an alternative um, beta-2 agonist like fometerol, I might talk to the patient's asthma clinician to make sure that's okay, then that would be you know, a, a better alternative for the, for the beta-2 agonist. So um, yeah, that, that would be my approach. Thanks. Um, and in fact, uh, I just advised my mother-in-law uh, three days ago who was prescribed Paxlovid and, and she is on um, Salmeterol and, and did not, um, the, the doctor did not mention that nor um, holding her statin for eight days. So, um, so it shows you that um, uh, you know, it's important to check this because um, even some meds that that may seem like they 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 they're so routine. I was a little surprised that that they weren't checked, and I was able to give that advice. But uh, another another um, recent development are, is the recent update to facilitate direct pharmacist dispensing. And so, uh, Dr. Benson, I wanted to ask you about um, your thoughts about the pros and cons of that new development. Well, I certainly think the the reason for adding pharmacists as prescribers was aimed at easier access to Paxlovid and getting the message out in a broader uh, population than seemed to be accessing the drug. So I think the intention there and adding pharmacists as prescribers is really one of the big pros would be greater access. And certainly in a case like this, for example, where you're already four days into symptoms, earlier initiation would be something that would be a, a pro of having pharmacists prescribe rather than having her uh, attempt to get to contact a physician or see someone in a clinic and then get a prescription. Some of the cons I think about having pharmacists prescribing is that sometimes, you know, even though the EUA amendment suggests that pharmacists not prescribe it if they don't have complete information about underlying conditions and concomitant medications, that's not always the case when you're dealing with uh, interaction in a pharmacy with a pharmacist that you don't know. And so there is the potential that incomplete information and about concomitant, concomitant medications, just like we've been discussing, might be one of the cons. 
And then obviously the communication with the treating physician that pharmacist is, I believe, should be obligated to contact the physician who's providing care for those patients to let them know that they've prescribed that medication so that there is communication with the treating physician. And then um, obviously pharmacists don't have the same capacity to adequately monitor patients after they've started the medication. Um, so again, communication with a treating physician is going to be an important component to pharmacist prescription. Yes, and we continue to move into new eras of, um, of treatment, and so um, we can see the pros and cons of such approaches, and in the end, um, you know, timely treatment seems important, but we'll, we'll get to some of the pros and cons later of, of what can happen. Um, so here um, is, uh, let's say this, uh, we just changed the case up a little bit, and the patient were actually vaccinated and boosted, so a different scenario. Would you then treat with antivirals for this young woman in the Omicron era? Uh, I thought I'd turn to Dr. Chu, Kara, uh, um, uh, your thoughts on, on the treating um, technically patients who are high risk, but uh, are vaccinated, who are not represented importantly in the Epic HR trial. Right. Um, so certainly vaccinated and boosted her risk of severe COVID um, is uh, significantly lower. She does still have um, high risk um, risk you know, risk factors, the uh, pregnancy and her and her BMI um, and the asthma, and and so her risk is is higher than someone without those comorbidities. Um, while these patients vaccinated with comorbidities and also pregnant. Uh, were not represented in EPIC HR, they were included, though not the pre pregnant participants, um, in EPIC SR, which was uh, Pfizer's standard risk study. Um, and there was not a statistically significant um, reduction in risk for hospitalization or death, but I, I think a moderately large numerical um, reduction in hospitalizations for death uh, or deaths or the combination. And so close close to close to 60%. So I think there is still um, potential benefit and, and that's where the shared decision making comes in here. Um, and I, I would probably favor um, treating, certainly offering treatment um, and, and really strongly, strongly considering treatment. Thanks. Um... So um, in the interest of time, uh, I just thought I'd flash up some of the, um, uh, the top-line results that were reported uh, via press release, and we're anxiously awaiting kind of more details regarding um, what's behind these data, which, um, you know, importantly, these are presented by the company, and so uh, we look forward to both peer review as well as a, a dissection of these data. But um, again, it did not meet the primary endpoint, um, as just mentioned, but there are some trends of interest. And again, these are the individuals who are not high risk um, uh, as defined by the, the original high risk trial. So either they, they would have a condition but are vaccinated, so they have some protection, or um, they um, are unvaccinated uh, um, but don't have any characteristics. I, I wonder how many of those are, are actually represented in this trial. But um, uh, we very much look forward to this. Either way, the number needed to treat would be higher to prevent hospitalization, I think, in, in these uh, lower risk patients. So just to close out the case a little bit, um, this uh, patient declines the offer, um, afraid of effects on the baby uh, and, the, and the developing fetus. And, um, 
she does describe over the next few days on check-ins a uh, worsening dyspnea into her, um, you know, day eight to ten, let's say. Um, but her uh, oximetry levels are, are reasonable, and uh, she's advised to take a, a cocktail. Um, uh, by uh, from somewhere she found online of ivermectin, prednisone, and azithromycin. And so, uh, first, you know, what are considerations regarding dyspnea and um, home oxygen measurements, um, as particularly in pregnancy? I thought I'd ask that of, of uh, Dr. Riley. Yeah, so before we actually go there, um, Rachel put a really good question, I think, in the chat that um, the reason that I would have sort of persisted on the Paxlovid con conversation, recognizing the patient can always refuse, but I probably still would have pushed forward because I think there's other pregnancy risks that we get concerned about, things like preterm birth. Um, we don't know that that necessarily, um, that that risk is any lower now with the newer variants than it was, um, you know, earlier in the pandemic. And, um, and certainly people who, you know, have a fair amount of inflammation and fever, they are at increased risk for preterm birth. So I probably would have um, presented that data to her as well as one of the reasons. So, um, so that's just from the last question. Um, and in terms of dyspnea, I think, you know, the one concern is that um, sometimes people are, you know, will say things like, oh, or O2 sats like 93, 94, big deal. Um, it's, you know, mom is fine at 93, 94, but uh, baby may not be fine at 93. I think in this woman with a viable pregnancy, um, I think we do two things. One is we would have suggested that she come in for any shortness of breath, which can be tricky because pregnant women, as the uterus gets bigger, will get more short of breath, but usually with um, exertion. So if she's short of breath, just, you know, chatting with me on the phone, that's a problem. Um, but when we bring them in to check their O2 sats, we do get them up and walking around as well, just to make sure that we're not missing something um, that is happening. And then that puts her in a whole new basket of concern. Thanks. Um, that that um, that idea of, of closely watching patients um, who are at high risk that you're worried about and um, you know, making sure they're checking in and, and bringing them in when necessary, especially when it seems a little complicated, a woman with asthma, as you said, I mean, um, there's, there's many reasons to, to keep a close eye on this. And also, uh, in, uh, as we just heard, uh, a bit more um, um, uh, thinking about treatment for, for reasons, even though um, uh, she didn't seem that sick initially. So I, I wanted to turn to this I, um, unproven treatment recommendation issue. Um, you know, I have to say one of the things that COVID-19 has revealed is, is how um, difficult it is not only for science to advance, but also to communicate about that science, which is constantly changing. And so um, uh, I'll return to Dr. Haydar, uh, just, um, uh, you know, if you've encountered these scenarios and, and sort of what are your thoughts regarding, uh, again, counseling patients who may um, have, bring you some, some of these alternative therapies. Yeah, and it's it's always difficult, similarly to the issue of vaccine of vaccine of vaccine hesitancy. There there was a time where I think ivermectin was very in vogue in the media and was a bit controversial in ID circles. And at the time it made it a bit difficult to have the ivermectin discussions because we weren't sure. If we didn't think that it might work, we just weren't sure because the data weren't there. Now the data are there. Um, and so, I mean, my, my approach is to just say, yes, but um, 
we now know for a fact that ivermectin really doesn't do anything for COVID-19. And actually, some people who take a lot of high doses on their own have come to the ER with toxicities and things like that. And do your best to convince and to not condone. And similarly with, with um, azithromycin, um, I feel like fervor among patients um, who uh, may not be aware of the right therapies for drugs like azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine has waned over time. I feel like there's definitely been a shift compared to the discussions we were having a year and a half or, or, uh, or uh, two years ago. And for the prednisone, my approach is to just highlight um, to these patients that while you're not on supplemental oxygen, there's really no benefits here. And I worry about immunosuppressing you further. I do think that there is a lot of outreach that can and should be done to providers in the community to try to avoid uh, prescribing drugs that are ineffective or, or are harmful, especially since we have a lot of drugs that work. Our system does that. There's a lot of emails that go out telling people what to do and what not to do and things like that. But I think that at times it's difficult to change behaviors. Yes, um, and I'm sure many of us could tell stories from um, uh, the unproven treatments or yet to be proven treatments from, um, from early on in the uh, HIV epidemic that were going around. Um, and so, um, you know, there are so many parallels. Well, um, just to kind of finish out a, the last theme of the, the flagship um, case that I wanted to present. Um, just wanted to note that there is a, a literature that predated COVID, but um, you know has been really brought out with COVID. That that many of the um, uh, home, the oximeters that are used, deployed in practice um, were calibrated not necessarily uh, or rigorously on uh, darker skinned individuals, and so. This is just showing some splay of uh, different uh, race and ethnicities and uh, uh, that there's a greater likelihood of, of under-reading or uh, missing hypoxemia in certain subgroups. And then uh, also just wanted to point out the disparities in accessing these therapies, and this is the CDC report, but our own internal data within our system would definitely um, say this, that um, uh, from a um, suburban um, that has you know, that immediate access to their doctor, how quickly they could get these therapies as opposed to other communities that, that will have less access. And uh, Peter, I remember having this discussion with you when we did this ID week uh, session together. Uh, what, are, you know, what are your thoughts regarding uh, disparities at this stage in the epidemic? I mean, I think they're huge and they continue. And um, I think I've been struck by data showing that uh, disparities in general, when you look at hospitalizations and deaths, um, they occurred not just early in the pandemic, but they continue during Omicron. There's lots of data to show that. And when you dive deeper and you look at some of the, the current therapies that we have available for outpatients, like you've been talking about Paxlovid and you're showing here, um, there's uh, now ample data, not only in the MMWR, but the, by the Kaiser Family Foundation showing that, sure, most counties have access to facilities that can dispense Paxlovid and other oral therapies, but uh, the number of prescribers uh, is uh, very different from county to county, and they go along the lines of uh, race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status. The federal government doesn't provide data on who actually gets Paxlovid, but we make an assumption, and based on my own uh, uh, personal experience too, that uh, there are many people in vulnerable communities who are not 
getting access to Paxlovid, not only because they don't know about it, but because the providers in that area have, uh, you know, misinformation about Paxlovid, particularly around rebound and um, therefore not prescribing it. And so the, the idea that pharmacists can do it, uh, address will hopefully make it better. Uh, One-stop shopping with drive-throughs may hopefully make it better. Uh, and not only for these communities, but for rural communities as well. Thanks. This has clearly revealed something that um, existed pre-pandemic and, and just uh, continues to be a stark reminder of how our health system uh, delivers care. So, um, so I think, um, uh, you know, relevant to some of the chatter in the chat, I think, um, as well as a very timely topic, I'll present an 81-year-old male uh, government official who um, attended a college reunion and then a few days later has tested positive for COVID-19 um, via routine antigen tested. This gentleman is fully vaccinated, boosted twice, um, developing mild symptoms just uh, on his first day. And so he, he received five days of nermatrovir ritonavir and with clinical improvement, he then um, is regularly tested and is negative for three days. But day four, the antigen test reverts to positive. And then shortly after this gentleman developed symptoms that were much worse than the first episode, but he is not yet hypoxemic. And so this is a, a case of rebound that is associated with Paxlovid use. And so um, uh, I, I hope uh, people may recognize who this is in, in the chat. Um, you, can, you can take your guesses, but... Um, I wanted to ask Dr. Evering in terms of how you're currently counseling. I'm sure you've fielded a few questions by now regarding rebound uh, in, in, as of July 2022, as we await more data. Yeah, so it's an, it's an important question. Um, it's important to understand what we believe about the rates of rebound currently in the clinical trials that led to the approvals of uh, Paxlovid. It was about 2%. Um, and in subsequent trials, it's been anywhere from between one and 2% approximately. Although anecdotally, we hear a lot about it. Um, it's important to understand what the current recommendations are in terms of guidelines. And currently the guidelines do not recommend any role for retreatment um, at this time. Now, what happens in the community, what's happened in this case and a number of other high profile cases can be very different. Um, but currently the, re the recommendations are not to retreat. And typically that's because rebound cases in general um, tend to not result in hospitalization or increased morbidity. They tend to be milder. Um, and there is also the question of whether or not this is in fact rebound or recrudescence of the initial COVID-19 illness, which can occur. So um, it's a difficult conversation to have um, with participants or patients. Um, and thus far, I have not personally retreated anyone um, because that hasn't been, I haven't seen someone that's had worse symptoms um, during their rebound case, but I understand that it's a difficult conversation to have and it can cause a lot of anxiety um, with patients who have taken what they believe to be um, the best medication for their mild to moderate COVID-19. Um, Dr. Benson, I wanted to follow up uh, regarding your thoughts regarding rebound and, and uh, potential retreatment and um, what you'd like to share about it. I, you know, in, in general, I agree with the comments that have already been made, but I have a little bit of, of a different take on it. And one of those has to do with the fact that I don't think the original trial done with Paxlovid 
adequately addresses this question. I don't think the follow-up or the patient population that might be at risk for rebound were appropriately represented in the clinical trials. So I think, in fact, we don't really have an answer for whether longer duration of treatment might be appropriate in some populations because that wasn't part of the trial. The trial also enrolled people that didn't include a large proportion of individuals who fit the, the case that you're presenting. So for me, I think there are a number of unanswered questions about rebound in the context of COVID. And if I can digress from our own clinical population, we actually have seen a much higher rate of rebound than the 2% that is described by Pfizer in their clinical trials. So um, what are the factors that might favor rebound or increase the risk of rebound? I think it would be pretty easy to guess that um, the recency of the vaccination and boosting might be a factor older age in this particular individual, 81, is quite a bit older than the population studied in the Paxlovid trials. Underlying immunosuppression or other comorbidities that affect the immunological reserve, like what we heard from the talk about HIV, may impair the ability to ramp up an anamnestic response. So, I can see certain situations where retreatment might be an appropriate approach. Whether we'll ever have answers to those questions in an appropriately conducted clinical trial remains an issue for all of us trying to deal with these difficult discussions. There also could be a theoretical benefit to retreatment of a rebound because um, I can tell you from personal experience, the rebound in symptoms are accompanied by a rebound in um, viral shedding and subsequent duration of quarantine and potential transmission in a household or in some other closed setting when you have a rebound episode continues to be a problem um, despite mask wearing and the other PPE that people are recommending. So. I think there's a lot of different things that go into a decision about whether you retreat. And I don't think that obviously the FDA can't go beyond what data they were presented and their recommendation is based on the data that they were presented, but they weren't presented data in some of these other exceptional circumstances where you might consider retreating during a rebound episode. So I think my, in summary, I think we need to be a bit more flexible with our recommendations than the FDA has allowed and maybe take into consideration some of these other factors. Yeah, so clearly there's, um, there's a lot to be um, determined here as, as you're saying, and, and whether we'll have these data sources um, is kind of an interesting question because uh, as you mentioned, you know, will we have to derive it from data sources that, that don't quite get at the, um, the exact answer that we're looking for and that are strong enough to change FDA in particular. 
Uh, I did want to highlight this case series that was recently published in Clinical Infectious Diseases regarding seven individuals who experienced this rebound. And so as many of us have, have already heard or, or experienced or managed um, these rebounds, I mean, this is just kind of classic in terms of when it occurs a few days after the end of the Paxlovid treatment. Um, and then there are implications for isolation, as you just heard from Dr. Benson, regarding the um, shedding that then the um, that that the viral titers in, at, at relapse can be quite high, um, and that these individuals, uh, several or three out of seven, had positive viral cultures, which. Um, maybe a surrogate for contagiousness, um, not sure, but it took a while for those individuals to revert back to negative. And so, uh, you know, I do think that rebound has resulted in a bit of, um, uh, you know, uh, reluctance amongst providers um, and even amongst patients who may not want to experience, you know, up to two to three weeks of um, isolation. Then again, we, we really don't know if it's associated with Paxlovid even. Importantly, um, none of the reports so far have, have shown development of viral resistance. Uh, and I think it's really an open question as to whether five days is really enough for, for most people or not. Um, and so uh, there's definitely more to come and sounds like a, a future topic for perhaps an IAS USA um, uh, webinar to delve deeper. So I don't know if um, any of the other panelists uh, want to share thoughts regarding uh, rebound and, and some of the comments in the chat as to whether or not uh, one should perhaps um, wait for further symptoms to develop um, before initiating Paxlovid, this concept of you know, perhaps allowing some time for, for the amnestic response and the mystic response to develop. Um, these are all su such open questions. Um, I'm happy to make a brief comment. Um, I agree with Dr. Benson that in these cases of rebound, it is a case-by-case um, -case determination and the factors she outlined, age, frailty, um, immunocompromised state would influence my thinking. But like Dr. Evering, the bulk of the patients I've heard about are consulted about um, tend to have milder symptoms the second time around. And in most instances, I have not retreated um, because either the person has been recently vaccinated, um, has mild symptoms, and is not particularly frail. So I think I, I think we do have to have some flexibility, but I would say the majority of patients I, I don't end up treating who have rebound. Um, one um, attendee asked whether this has been seen with other drugs other than nematopirotonavir or Paxlovid. Um, or could it happen even in the absence of any drug therapy at all? And we'll remember back to 2020, um, back before we had any effective drugs, there was a biophasic nature to, to COVID-19. There is a preprint that's circulating now that looks at um, what they say um, is rebound with molnupiravir versus the matrivir-ritonavir to, um, to our two oral therapies. And the, the headline from that particular preprint is that the rates of rebound were the same or similar between molnupiravir and nematopir ritonavir. If you delve down into the, the nitty gritty though of that, of that preprint, it's an it's a administrative database with a large number of individuals, but they really can't distinguish lingering symptoms, which Dr. Evering is gonna talk about at the end of the symposium from rebound. That is, they don't have granular data as to whether a person with either nematopir ritonavir or molnupiravir gets better and then has recrudescence or whether they just have lingering symptoms. So I don't think it's a very definitive um, preprint in this case, and we'll see where it goes in, in peer review. So 
I think that we will see cases of rebound with other drugs. As to whether it's more or less frequent with nemaclovir or ritonavir, I don't think we know. I think there's a lot we don't know. Lastly, I would not um, personally delay treatment um, with nemaclovir or ritonavir if people otherwise meet the criteria for receiving the drug, um, that is to wait for the endogenous immune system to kind of kick into gear. I, I think all antivirals tend to work best if you give them early. And I don't think the evidence that rebound is somehow related to a lack of an endogenous immune response is firm enough for me to advise myself or others to, 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 to wait, even though there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter about that. Thanks, Raj. Um, so, uh, and the question in the chat, um, I mean, I do want to clarify um, that uh, based on this case series and whatnot, that uh, I would recommend uh, isolation uh, for symptomatic rebound at this time. Um, uh, the antigen test, perhaps as a surrogate, there was a high concordance in this um, study from Mass General uh, regarding that. And at least one of the series um, about rebound suggested that there were um, uh, transmissions in a couple of cases uh, during the rebound period. Um, in the interest of time, I, I will um, skip this um, brief comment about nematrovo resistance, other than to say uh, thus far we've not seen it uh, after Paxlovid. Instead, for the last few minutes, I wanted to highlight some uh, issues that will segue into the inpatient side. But uh, a 65-year-old gentleman who underwent a kidney transplantation, he's uh, well vaccinated and in fact received pixagevimab, silgavimab, the uh, Evoshell product in January. Uh, he developed symptoms consistent with COVID-19 and is positive, and we'll take that as a positive, as you heard earlier from Dr. Chinhong, uh, that in, um, uh, and he's maintained on this um, mycophenolate, prednisone, and he's on baladicept. Uh, and he's also on atorvastatin and allopurinol. He's um, uh, satting well on his home uh, oximeter. And, and just thinking about this patient and how uh, high risk they are, um, and, um, Dr. Hadar and you, you and others on this call as well take care of immunocompromised patients. Uh, how do you view this person's risk, um, perhaps in contrast to the uh, first case? Yeah, this, this person is extremely high risk and there's a lot of variables going against them. They're 65, they've had an SOT, uh, so, an, so an organ transplant. Um, they're also on triple immunosuppressive drugs, including MMF or myco or myco phenylate, which is known to be independently as associated with poor, at least humoral responses to COVID-19 vaccines. They're also on, uh, on uh, Belatacept, which is an injectable um, immunosuppressive drug that targets signal two. And this one has also been as as associated with bad vaccine responses and also bad outcomes after SOT. And you can maybe also throw in this uh, lipidemia in there as a risk factor. So, so this person is very, very high risk. And so um, I just wanted to highlight this slide, which is available on the IDSA Real-Time Learning Network, which represents that four-dimensional um, risk strata uh, uh, that we're constantly doing uh, for, for patients who are presenting with COVID and just thinking through their degrees on each of these axes. Um, and if they're more in the red zone, uh, if they're, they have two or three in the red zone to, to push towards treatment. And, and then if, if they're more in the uh, blue zone, they either don't qualify or whatnot, but this patient is really pinging on a number of levels. So I just thought this was a nice way to highlight as well as uh, even amongst the different types of immuno. Uh, 
uh, suppression, that there are those who are more mildly, more moderately, and, and severely immunocompromised. And so um, uh, at varying times in the pandemic, we were um, rationing. Um, just uh, briefly, um, Peter, how, what was the UCSF experience? Did you have to triage over, uh, at your institution? When, when supplies of, say, citrovimab or Paxlovid were, were rare? Uh, we hemmed and hawed a lot about whether or not we should uh, prioritize or make these tiers, and there have been different systems all over the country, um, like University of Toronto, et cetera. But we decided at the end of the day, being California, that we couldn't really do that, uh, given the data that we had. So it essentially became a first come, first serve within a general tier of immunocompromised. And uh, we basically uh, didn't really have to end up doing anything because, as you know, uh, the uptake of, of, of these monoclonal antibodies, even long acting, wasn't quite as robust as we had anticipated. So that was uh, basically what, what it came down to. Um, in terms of Paxlovid and other therapies, um, uh, again, there were uh, maybe a couple of pharmacies uh, in the beginning that were giving them out. So we prioritized patients to get these. It was very, very difficult to treat patients uh, admitted with a diagnosis of COVID, as you know, with Paxlovid. So if you came in with a broken foot, but happened to have COVID, we can give you, and the diagnosis with broken foot, we can give you Paxlovid, but not, you know, otherwise in the in those early days. So lots of barriers, but hopefully getting a lot better. And so, um, you know, at this point, we do have choices. So, so we'll just ask uh, at the end here, um, the audience in terms of what would be the preferred treatment option for such an individual. Um, and I know uh, many in the audience may not be taking care of uh, patients who have transplants, but um, just wanted to give you an opportunity to um, e exercise the audience response and discuss what you might want to do. Um, and I've added instead of azithromycin, um, the choices are, are similar otherwise, um, instead of azithromycin, I added convalescent plasma just to see what people think. Um, so um, I was advised to, to fill time if um, uh, just quickly about molnupiravir. Um, when do we use molnupiravir um, these days? Um, doc Dr. Benson, I was gonna ask you this. I guess nobody. Well, I, think, <laughs> I think that's uh, uh, a very good question. I have not yet had um, either the need or desire to prescribe molnupiravir. Um, it's generally indicated for treatment in individuals who can't receive other available therapies. And thus far, that hasn't really been uh, the situation in our institution. So we have sort of a hierarchical approach, as I'm sure many institutions do. If it's an outpatient with mild to moderate disease, if they can access Paxlovid, that's our first choice. If they can't access Paxlovid, the second and third choice has to do with one of with um, bebtilovimab or remdesivir, depending on whether or not we can organize the infusions for one day or three days. And only in the instance where none of those therapies are available or can't be accessed would uh, our impetus be to organize molnupiravir. I think there are potential um, pros to molnupiravir. 
Um, the drug interactions are not an issue. The um, use in people with underlying renal failure or hepatic disease are, or um, in this case, kidney transplantation, if there's renal dysfunction are not an issue. So some of the things that go along with all the difficulties of using Paxlovid are not a problem with Molnupiravir. But as we all know, the efficacy of Molnupiravir has uh, fallen off substantially from the other available therapies. And so um, the maximum benefit one could expect in terms of reducing hospitalizations and deaths is substantially lower than with other available therapies. So I think you're in the realm of a discussion with the patient about the best options and what's available. Um, I'd be interested to hear what the other panelists think about molnupiravir and whether you've used it. Well, um, I've quickly used it. I was, I believe, the first or the second prescriber in our system when we had our supply. And so um, we um, had, um, uh, we were triaging Paxlovid to the higher risk patients, um, patients who were lower tier who would have logistical issues or were also unable to achieve um, well, citrovimab at that time. Uh, and so, and remdesivir was not set up. And so we just ended up um, using molnupiravir. And we continue to see a few prescriptions in our system. And, um, you know, I think if, if you have someone who's awaiting uh, antibody uh, within a seven day window, um, but uh, you want to get them started and, and they do have this drug nearby and they can't take Paxlovid, then those seem to be the situations I can imagine. I just, you know, just quickly about molnupiravir, this is very reminiscent of, of ribavirin and sort of its issues regarding genotoxicity and, it, and we would not give it to pregnant patients, for instance. Um, uh, Laura, I'm really reminded about ribavirin and, and sort of counseling around those issues. So, um, you know, just bullet points for, for this um, group who may not have prescribed ribavirin in terms of um, how to counsel patients of childbearing potential. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, any drug um, basically that uh, looks toxic in animals is a drug that we're not even going to think about using in uh, pregnant women uh, over the concerns for congenital malformations. And so, um, as Dr. Benson said, um, thankfully for us, there are alternatives. Um, and so we would not have used um, uh, Molnupiravir uh, just based on the animal data. Um, and uh, that would be it. It's a it's a full stop no. And the fact that remdesivir and Paxlovid were available it made it an easy decision. And then, um, as a reminder, just to take us through the cases, we're nearing time here. Um, that ritonavir is is very problematic with um, potentially uh, uh, tacrolimus if this patient were on that. However, I, I, this patient happens to be on basalizumab, and so. Um, uh, but um, this patient uh, actually received um, uh, bevtilovimab. I think our transplant uh, 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 providers were just so used to sending all their patients this way is that they immediately did that uh, without uh, realizing that this patient happened to not be on pacrolemus. And so um, just uh, to note that it is active against the variant um, uh, and remains uh, active even against BA4.5. Um, and uh, while we lost the trovimab, we do have um, 
this uh, agent. Um, uh, but we lack like a lot of clinical data uh, and especially in randomized controlled trial format that it's, it's really extrapolated based on the other antibody data. There's some real world data suggesting efficacy, um, but nevertheless, um, this has resulted in a slight downgrade uh, compared to remdesivir, which is a, a preferred uh, therapy. And so um, uh, you can see the rank order here again of um, Paxlovid being first along with remdesivir. Um, as a reminder, remdesivir through the pine tree trial is a three-day course of an IV infusion. Um, and so while bevtilovimab is alternative, I think um, many systems have seen that one dose uh, is easier to implement than three doses. And so um, that, that seems to be the main barrier to uh, use of remdesivir. And as a reminder, the efficacy for um, reducing hospitalization and death, while it looked good in the interim analysis at 50%, um, the, the post-interim analysis didn't quite look as good for some reason. And then in the end, we resulted in this 30% reduction for molnupiravir. Um, and then finally, this patient after recovery, um, I think um, earlier, um, Dr. Bender Ignacio addressed how soon after recovery, perhaps wait a few weeks before receipt of uh, the next due vaccine. And um, uh, this patient is, uh, was dosed with tixagabamab, silgabamab in January, 2022. And thus, uh, as a reminder to this audience, now the FDA has authorized uh, six-month um, repeat dosing of tixagabamab, silgabamab um, uh, at this time. And then um, just, uh, I think we're, we've been asked to kind of wind down. There are a few other issues that uh, we could talk about, including um, prolonged illness in immunocompromised hosts. Um, and so um, this is a gentleman who, uh, after bevtilovimab, the case he did develop multifocal infiltrates. And I think several of these themes will also be taken up in the inpatient um, session and so as a preview. So uh, I think at this time, um, I'd like to um, uh, sort of close um, in terms of uh, this section so we can get to the Q&A. Um, but um, I just wanted to thank our panelists for their uh, wonderful responses um, and, and uh, uh, going through the the cases and um, hopefully some timely advice to the audience uh, uh, to hear this expert crowd um, give, give on these um, uh, very timely issues. So uh, I'd like to close there. Uh, these are just some take home points from those cases, which um, will be available for download um, uh, after the session. Wonderful, thank you, uh, Dr. Kim. I think we have five minutes for questions. I'll try to do a rapid fire uh, lightning round, um, starting with the question of testing. Are current antigen tests picking up BA4 or 5? I'm gonna ask people to comment. I don't know who to ask. Uh, Arthur, you wanna comment on antigen tests and BA4, BA5? Yeah, I, I believe that they are. Um, you know, anecdotally, the, the latest cases I've heard about, um, uh, many of, many individuals often have sore throats um, uh, as predominant symptoms, as well as um, sort of less loss of taste and smell in the Omicron era. With BA45, it seems like there um, is a return a bit of the uh, taste and smell. Uh, there are, uh, is a lot of off-label use, I should say, of swabbing one's throat if sore throats are, are, are predominant, but uh, nonetheless, um, 
Uh, I do believe it's picking up, picking up uh, BA4-5 based on all the anecdotes I have around me, as well as what our lab tells us that it should be um, remain sensitive for, for BA4-5. You made a nice comment though about back to always retest that you have a compatible clinical syndrome and then have a negative test. I have recent uh, household experience with this um, phenomenon of uh, early antigen tests being negative and a couple of days in the antigen tests turn positive. I don't think it's the BA4 or 5 issues, just the sensitivity of the antigen tests, as, as Peter said before. Um, a question that I'll direct over to, to uh, Dr. Ignacio Bender. Um, Bender Ignacio, sorry. Um, data, clinical efficacy of tixagevimab, silgevimab, also known as Evashelt against BA4, BA5. Um, that seems to be an appropriate theme of the day. Um, do you have any insights into whether that will work against BA4 or 5? Yeah, so of the two drugs, um, one takes uh, quite a hit uh, in all of the Omicron variants and other, the other one retains, say, it, a modestly reduced um, uh, uh, neutralization in the lab. So we don't have really strong clinical data in the Omicron era because most of the studies were done before Omicron. So what we have is there's a really nice um, national database that the um, Foundation for the NIH maintains with all of the, the lab data and it shows the fold reductions against all of the different variants. So we see depending on the study and depending on the Omicron subvariant, uh, a reduction somewhere between threefold and, um, and probably 50 fold or maybe even 100 fold in some cases. Um, but the combination of the two seems to have uh, less of reduction. And then it's important to note also that in the original studies, the, um, the neutralization um, uh, concentration is in the nanomolar range. And what we can achieve in, um, in the blood is in the micromolar range. And so even taking you know, up to a hundred fold reduction, the idea is that it's probably still um, effective, especially for prevention, because when we're looking at prevention, we're looking at um, having to neutralize uh, less virus than in someone who already is, um, has disease, already has the infection. Um, and then just sort of taking a poll of colleagues um, who are using this, and for example, in our transplant patients, clinically, we're not seeing, we're seeing some breakthrough infections, but ten, tending to be of um, kind of mild and moderate severity. Um, I don't think that anecdotally, um, or maybe slightly more than anecdotally, um, among at least my healthcare system, we haven't um, seen people who've gotten um, tixagevimab, silgevimab, um, within the last um, few months uh, end up hospitalized um, with, um, with a breakthrough infection. Uh, again, I think we're seeing a few sort of mild, mild to moderate cases, and I don't know if others have, have that experience. As of time, we'll just take one last question and then carry forward the rest to the round table, Dr. Chu. Um, uh, if, would if getting a fourth booster dose now prohibit someone from getting a booster in the fall, what, what would you project? Um, I think that uh, in the fall, it'd be a few months from now, so maybe not. <laughs> um, yeah, we do like to have some space in between boosters to, um, I think that, that um, in increases the efficacy of, of the boosters. Um, and so having a rest period is, is a good idea, but um, you know, I, I, depending on the timing, it may not preclude another booster. Great. And, um, I think we're going to do a couple of BA4, BA5 questions and booster questions during the roundtable. So with that, I'm going to um, give everyone a break. I think uh, some of us will go eat lunch, others will eat breakfast, others might eat dinner. So why don't you take a quick break and we will join um, 
for the um, hospitalized patient segment of the symposium and the uh, post-COVID um, uh, lecture uh, in the second half. And I want to thank all of the panelists and uh, the moderator um, for um, leading a really outstanding discussion today, as well as our first speaker. See you in a bit after the break. <laughs>